morning. Today's reading will be from 1 Samuel 24, verses 1 through 11. When Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the wilderness near Engedi. So Saul took 3,000 of Israel's choice men and went to look for David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. When Saul came to the sheep's pen along the road, a cave was there, and he went in to relieve himself. David and his men were staying in the back of the cave, so they said to him, Look, this is the day the Lord told you about. I will hand your enemy over to you, so you can do to him whatever you desire. Then David got up and secretly cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, I swear before the Lord, I would never do such a thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. I will never lift my hand against him, since he is the Lord's anointed. With these words, David persuaded his men, and he did not let them rise up against Saul. Then Saul left the cave and went on his way. After that, David got up, went out of the cave and called to Saul, my Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed to the ground in homage. David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of people who say, look, David intends to harm you. You can see with your own eyes that the Lord handed you over to me today in the cave. Someone advised me to kill you, but I took pity on you and said, I won't lift my hand against my Lord since he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at the corner of your robe in my hand, for I cut it off, but I didn't kill you. Look and recognize that there is no evil or rebellion in me. I haven't sinned against you, even though you are hunting me down to take my life. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to remain standing. We'll pray together. Just want to give a shout out to everyone who's been a part of the setup team who serves in the morning to help create as cool a space as possible. We just want to thank all of you guys. Um, and uh, we also realize that it's going to be a little spicy in here. It'll be a little hot today, and that's okay. Um, so let's pray. Lord Jesus, there's so many ways that you want to speak to us this morning. And I believe, Jesus, that you are at work in our lives in the difficulty and in our rejoicing times. And we pray that you would please help us to recognize how you're at work in our lives, shaping us, working in us. Can you just take a moment right now to be still? And remember that God is the one who has placed the stars and the sun and the moon where it is. And that you have breath right now. It's a gift of God. You don't know how long you'll have breath in your lungs. You don't know what tomorrow brings. You're tempted to worry and fear and doubt, control. And yet right now, the Father is inviting you into a place of trust and rest to take Jesus' easy yoke upon you. Are you willing to do that? If so, just whisper, yes, Jesus, I'm willing. Bring your healing, God, we pray. 
In the power of your Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We're continuing in our sermon series in the life of David. David is a man who is on his way to become king. David is known as a man after God's own heart. He is constantly following in pursuit of the heart of God. Yet David's also a man of tremendous flaws. He's a man who doesn't get it right, oftentimes. He's got a heart of a worshiper and the heart of a warrior, and the two conflict every now and then. As I was thinking about this series and I was thinking about this passage, I thought about Michelangelo's statue of David. And probably like you, I've heard way too many illustrations about Michelangelo's statue of David, uh, particularly maybe the one where other people look at this marble and they just see a block of stone. But when Michelangelo looked at it, he saw what? He saw David. I did some research on it. I actually don't think that story's true. I think there's some folklore involved there. But what I did find out about this work of art, this masterpiece, is that the project began almost 40 years before Michelangelo was commissioned to work on the stone. A cathedral in Italy had commissioned one sculptor around 1464 to carve the biblical figure of David. They wanted it to be one of a dozen or so biblical figures that they were going to set on top inside their cathedral. But after working with the difficult marble for a bit of time, the first artist abandoned the project. And then another artist was commissioned to work on the project, and he gave it a shot, and he too abandoned the project. And both said the reason why they abandoned the project was because the marble was too flawed. It had too many imperfections. And so the huge block of barely chiseled marble actually lay on its side in the courtyard for 20 plus years outside of the cathedral, bearing all of the uh, rain and the elements of the, of the weather. And what's interesting to me about this statue and the story of David is how much the two resemble each other. And maybe it remember, resembles the story of your life, and I can certainly relate to it from my own story. If there ever is a period where David can feel forgotten, shrouded, left outside in the elements, wondering if his life has been put on hold or if he'll ever be picked up again, this is the period in 1 Samuel 24. David can feel flawed, forgotten, shrouded. Just a few chapters earlier, David goes from herding sheep to being Israel's next future anointed king. And he began to experience incredible victory. You heard a couple weeks ago, we heard the phrase, Saul has slain his thousands, but the song that the people were singing said that David has slain his ten thousands. He's such a stud, such a hero at this point. And he began to experience incredible victory, even a hero status. His journey to the promised throne seems sure. He's experiencing God's favor. The problem with God's path, though, is that many times it's more of a zigzag than a straight line. The path that God is taking you to the character that he's shaping you into being 
is more of a zigzag than a straight line. And that's what David is experiencing here. You see, Israel currently has a king, and his time is limited. This king's heart is far from God, but he's not about to let it go. He's not about to let go of his power and his privilege and his throne and his authority. Saul is a man who will have no rival. His ego is plagued by envy and he's filled with raging jealousy and that jealousy is what causes Saul to hunt down David when he hears of his whereabouts. At this point, David has a small posse with him. Men who have run to David for refuge. One chapter, chapter 22 says, these men could be described as being in debt, discontented, and desperate. Sometimes when we ourselves are in places of in debt, discontent, and desperate, isn't it funny how easily we attract the same kinds of people to ourselves? That's where David is. 400 or so men have fled to him, rallied around him, and their circumstances are far from great. They're on the run from this raging king who's using government money and government uh, forces to track down this young shepherd warrior and worshiper named David. Only this time, he's found him. He's trapped him. He has nowhere to go. He feels like victory is inevitable. The question that we're forced to ask is this, why doesn't God do something? If God has chosen David to be the next king, if God has given David promises from his word, if God has said that I will be with you and your foes and enemies shall not outwit you, why this 11-year period of life on the run? Life in caves, uncertainty, danger. Why the zigzag instead of the straight line? Why these life-threatening encounters with Saul? And at some point, you're asking yourself the same thing, aren't you? Why is this lasting so long, God? Why the pain? Why the zigzag? What about the promises that you were gonna provide for me? Where are you in all of this? This is too long. There's prayers that you've prayed, there's prophetic words you've received, there's promises from God's word that you've clung to and weeks and months and maybe years have passed and you're starting to wonder if God has left you outside of the cathedral to be shrouded like the statue in Italy. And I don't know why God does that. I believe God does know why though. And for whatever reason, God lets David be cornered and hide in caves. Saul, however, is a man who has everything. He has the throne, he has the power. And I believe God is creative in the way that he carves out the character in our lives and he actually uses these times on the run. For Saul, he started out okay, but in the end, his character has serious cracks. Those cracks leaked what was really inside. Saul is controlled by fear, fear of losing his power, fear of losing popularity, fear of what people think and their admiration for him being removed, fear of failure. It all drives him 
for more and more to the point where he will hunt down anyone who gets in his way. And it causes Saul to lose God in the midst of all of his religion and spirituality talk just to get ahead. Saul has strong qualities, guys. But those qualities are being corroded. They've become corrupted. He becomes paranoid. He cuts people down. Anyone who gets in his way, his spirituality is largely driven by superstition. You know, if I do this, then maybe God will come through. And if God doesn't come through through prayer, then I'll consult a medium. And when the medium doesn't come through, then I'll make my own sacrifices the way that the high priest would. Doesn't matter how God's word tells me I should do this. He becomes far more concerned with pleasing people than obeying God. And in the end, Saul is driven by jealousy, envy, greed, and ego. Which is why he's using government money and government manpower to hunt down his greatest threat to keeping the throne. He's heard about David's whereabouts, and now he's got him trapped in the desert. But before overtaking David, Saul has to take care of some personal business. He's got to use the bathroom. And everyone knows that when you got to go, you got to go. And one form of potty requires a little more privacy than the other. I hope so, at least. Thankfully for Saul, there's this cave where he can go and do his duty. Or so he thinks. What Saul... (laughs) Let's just call attention to how amazing is the fact that I called it duty and not number two this entire time been hiding it so far. I'm amused, you're not. (laughs) But uh, that's okay. What Saul doesn't know is that there are 400 men silently hiding in the back of this cave. So when Saul sets aside his robe to go and handle his business, he's literally caught with his pants down. David's friends think, David, This is no brainer. They start telling him, this is God's gift to you, man. This is your chance to do away with the very problem that's ruining your life and our lives. This is your time. Do it, David. I imagine the dilemma that David's in. And if I were David, I think I would feel the tension of being seen as a strong leader who takes action in the moment. I would feel the pressure from the people around me and the discomfort of their lives to jump in and handle business in a way that actually pleases the crowd around me. David doesn't do that. He's not driven by people pleasing like Saul is. In this moment, something greater wins out for David. Instead, David decides to cut a little piece of Saul's rope. Now, some of you are wondering, really? What is that proving? You're gonna prove your power to Saul through a little wardrobe malfunction? And there's others who are like, no, I totally get it. You mess with another man's robe, you do not mess with another man's outerwear. This is war. But there's more to it than that. Saul's robe is his identity card. It represents his power. And so when David chops off a piece of his robe, he's proving, hey, look it, I got power to overtake you anytime I want. 
And this act would actually be seen as a symbol of disloyalty to the throne and to the king. And he's showing Saul, I've got power in my hand to take your life and to spare it. The kingdom is being cut away from you. But in that moment, something more than a robe is being cut. David's conscience is being cut. What's happening here? Yahweh is actually speaking to David's heart. That's why it says in verse 5, you see it on this screen over here. Afterward, David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Yahweh is cutting out the Saul in David through allowing him to be cornered in caves. Yahweh is cutting out the Saul in David and carving out the character of a king. Why? Because here's the thing. God is creative in the way that he carves out your character. God loves you so much that he's creative in the way that he's carving out your character. And what he's doing in David's heart right now is he's also cutting into his conscience so that he can carve out the character that's fitting for a king. The reality is there's a Saul that lurks in deep inside of me and there's a Saul that lurks deep inside of you. And the moment you place your faith in Jesus, he loves you so much just the way that you are and he loves you too much to leave you the way you are. So he's constantly on the move to work inside of you and to cut out the Saul that lurks deep inside of you and in me. See, inside of me, I have a tendency to fear man more than fear God to fear my future more than I trust in God's provision. Instead of deep in intimacy with the Trinity, I can resort to superstition. If I give in this way, if I serve in that way, if I am doing these particular things, surely God, you must bless me. Inside me, there is a lust for importance which can make me act impetuously. And inside of me is a tendency to see people as objects to be moved rather than an opportunity to give and receive love. Deep within me is a desire to not live by faith and wholehearted obedience to God because deep inside me lurks this tendency to trust in myself rather than God. That's what Saul does. And a Saul lurks inside of you just like it lurks inside of me. How does God cut away the Saul and carve out character in David and in us? I see three or four ways that he does this. This is what the Holy Spirit does and how he uses work and activity in our lives. The first thing is, verses one through three, the Holy Spirit cuts out the Saul and carves out character, number one, by letting you experience life in the cave. God uses the caves in our lives, the dark places where our backs are pinned to the wall. Why? It's in the cave that David is being challenged. Who and what will, listen, will he listen to most? Will he take matters into his own hands? Will he try to gain power and security on his own time? Or is David going to depend on Yahweh for his entire life? The caves can actually draw me and you closer to God. They're uncomfortable, they're dark, they seem unnecessary. God could just kill Saul in his sleep. He's already told Saul he's remo removing the kingdom from him. 
the whole waiting period could just be over in an instant. But for whatever reason, it's a necessary lesson in the development of David's character. If he's to have the character to match his calling, the character fitting a king, God is going to need to carve it out in his life, just like Michelangelo does with the statue David. And sometimes it involves caves. See, it wasn't until David became a big success when he became comfortable in the king's palace that he sinned against God in such a way that it painfully almost cost him everything. Sometimes I wonder, for my own life, if it would have been better for David to still have been in the caves when he encountered the experience with Bathsheba. A lot of times I have this tendency to think that life is going to begin once this certain thing happens in my life or I acquire this certain thing or place or position. God is presently active and working in your life right now, not when you get that. Where are your caves today? What are those areas in life that feel dark? those things that are making life so difficult for you to experience God's joy right now. Maybe you've pleaded with God to remove it from you, but you're still there. Maybe God's using the cave to carve out the Saul in your life and to carve out character that resembles that of a king. I want you to notice something about this cave though. God brought David a community that he would be able to experience it in. He doesn't send David into the cave by himself. He brings 400 other people who are also experiencing loneliness and dis depression and discouragement, and they're also in debt. The work that God is doing in your life, it must be done in community. Opening yourself up to others, as we heard last week. Developing spiritual friendships. When I first began following Jesus in 1997, I was 21 years old. I experienced a long, lonely period of trying to walk by faith by myself, and I remember pleading with God to please provide me with other friends or people that I can connect with because the people I was encountering, I couldn't. And I didn't know if I just needed to suck it up and try to figure it out or if God was gonna answer that prayer. And you know what? I can tell you the moment that I realized that he answered that prayer for me in my life. It was specific, and those Men became lifelong companions with me. Sometimes the strongest community is forged as we experience and endure caves together. The second thing that God uses to cut out the saw and to carve our character is not just caves, it's conviction. Verse four and five says that afterward, verse five, David's conscience bothered him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. What's the big deal? All he did was cut a corner of his robe to show him, I didn't kill you, I can kill you, and I chose not to. But look, I got this memento that I'm holding on to to remind you and me that I'm the one in authority. The old King James Version says in this verse, David's heart smote him. I love that. 
David realizes he's crossed a boundary, he's crossed a line. God is the one who's anointed Saul as king, and if God wants to remove David, that's God's business. That's your timing. I'm not gonna take control of that. What's happening here? What's happening is that the Holy Spirit is working on David's conscience. He's reminding David that Yahweh is the one who anointed Saul, and Yahweh is the one who has a plan and a timing to remove Saul and install David as king. And maybe it's just a thought or a feeling that enters David's heart. Maybe it's just an impression. Maybe it's a still, small voice. I don't know how the Holy Spirit cuts into Saul's conscience, but however he does it, he brings conviction. That's the sign that you're truly, listen, that's a sign that you're truly growing in character. You're truly growing in Christ-like character, not by your perfection perfect execution of all the stuff. You're truly growing in Christ-like character when the gap between when you sin and when you repent is closing evermore. Listen, David realizes I could take matters into my own hands right now but I'm choosing not to. It's a tricky balance, right? Because sometimes we are to take action and other times we're to wait for God's answer. I have a friend who likes to say, unless it violates scripture, as a general rule of thumb, make plans to move forward unless God stops you. Unless it violates scripture, as a general rule of thumb, You continue to pray and move forward and ask God to stop you if you need to be stopped. Listen, to cut out the Saul inside of David, the Spirit speaks to his heart and gently cuts into his conscience. The Spirit is cutting away the little ways that David might justify cutting others down in order to build himself up. The Spirit is cutting away the need to control the outcome rather than to wholly trust in God's perfect character and timing. And so it's the kindness of God that leads to this kind of conviction for David. Here's the point. Many of us think, like I said, the mark of true character is perfect execution, but it's not. What is it? It's that the gap is closing between the moment I violate God's standard, that I sin against the Spirit, and when I repent and experience that restoration. David demonstrates a heart that's sensitive to conviction by the Spirit. That's a sign of growing maturity. Saul's heart is hard. He doesn't respond with conviction, with genuine repentance. And I would actually challenge you that if when you sense, oh my gosh, I think God is speaking to me, I think that there's an area that's out of line with Scripture, out of line with the way that God would have me to live, And without that sensitivity of conviction and repentance, you'll want to do some inventory of your soul with the Spirit of God. Saul responds with remorse over the consequences. David responds with the desire not to hurt the heart of the one who loves him so much. I actually thought about this verse a couple weeks ago before I knew I'd be teaching on this section. Nina and I had a friend over, a couple friends over, and uh, we were painting. Uh, We just recently moved, and so we were painting, uh, and we were 
just hanging out there. We were talking about people that we've known from the past who uh, now live far away. And uh, we were laughing about some of their own, the ridiculous things they do. And, you know, we're just having fun, we're joking, we're laughing. And that night, the Spirit ostensibly spoke to our friend's heart because in the morning, we received a text apologizing for them making fun of others and cutting others down, um, in their words, to make themselves feel better. And they actually, um, they said, I'm sorry that I did that, especially in front of your kids. What's interesting is that both me and Nina woke up the next morning, that same morning, with the same sense of our heart being smote. Conviction. My conscience was cut because I just, I was enjoying it. I was entering into it. And I didn't have the courage to say, hey, I don't think we should do this right now. My conscience was cut because I don't want to do that in front of my kids. And so on the, you know, when we were driving the next morning, we apologized to our girls. And our friend actually said, I also want to apologize to your girls. It was a lesson for me that even though there's things that might be culturally acceptable, that everybody else might even enter into, like putting others down or have, making fun of other people on their on, just so that we can have a good laugh, this actually doesn't edify the body of Christ. It doesn't edify the soul, my own soul, and it doesn't edify the spirit of God that dwells in me. And it's not the kind of parent that I want to be. I'm thankful for that kind of conviction. Maybe the Spirit is speaking to your heart this morning. Maybe you've tried to take matters into your own hands by going against the grain of God's Word. Maybe you've engaged in habits and behavior that others say, well, what's wrong with that? Everybody does that. That's no big deal. You're just cutting off the corner of somebody's robe. But the Spirit is telling you, no, you're in Christ, and Christ dwells in you. You're to follow me by listening to my word. And unless the opinion of others aligns with my word, you're not to live your life based on their opinion of me. Listen, a true sign that you're growing in Christ-like character is a heart that's sensitive to the conviction of the Spirit, especially when he's working to cut away the Saul from your life and to carve out the character that's fitting of a king. The third thing way that the Spirit carves our character. He's creative. So he also inspires us to take action. Verse 6 through 9 says there's another way that God carves out our character. He inspires David to take action. David and Saul both hear truth in this section. Both face the same question. It's the question, will you... <laughs> it's the question that's this. What am I going to do about what I've just heard? What will I do about it? What will I do about my, my quick temper, my quick response? What will I do about the complaining that's ongoing in my heart and soul that's affecting my very outlook of God in the world? One man's conscience here is cut and does something about it, while another's is cut and he does nothing about it. David's conviction leads him to action. And when the spirit cuts into his conscience, David just does the next right thing in front of him. He stands up and he says, I'm telling you right now, I'm making a promise, I'm not going to kill you. And I'm making a promise in front of all of my friends that I'm not going to run after you. I'm putting myself out there because I want to be held accountable. I don't want to live in this way. 
The Holy Spirit brings conviction, so David will take action. And in this case, his action is self-control. And in our culture, listen, there is one sin in our culture that's unforgivable. Do you know what it is? Denying yourself. Do you know what is a part of the beauty of experiencing wholeness in Christ? Picking up your cross and denying yourself and following Jesus. Because he has an imagination for your life that goes far beyond your own. But it's super hard in this case. David is refraining from taking matters into his own hands. It's so tough because this would make everyone's life so much easier. Isn't it funny that when I'm compromising on the right thing to do that I want my friends to compromise on the right thing to do as well because it makes me feel better when they are doing the same thing? David has felt conviction of the spirit. His conscience has been cut and so he makes this promise, I'm not gonna sin against God and I'm not gonna kill you. Saul, on the other hand, he's got all the power, right? He doesn't continue in the spirit's conviction because after Saul leaves the cave, David stands out in front of the cave and shouts this to Saul. Why do you listen to the words of people who say, look, David intends to harm you. You can see with your own eyes that the Lord handed you over to me today in the cave. Someone even advised me to kill you, man. But I took pity on you. I've had mercy on you. And I said, I'm not going to lift my hand against the Lord since he's the Lord's anointed. David makes this promise, and Saul hears David's words, and he too is cut to the heart, and he, he's even moved emotionally. We'll see that in just a second. But I want to point something out to you. Before, before David even confronts Saul, he creates a distance between him, it says in that chapter. If you're involved in abusive relationships or relationships where there's patterns of inappropriate behavior, listen, it takes one to forgive. It takes two to reconcile. And sometimes true reconciliation involves distancing yourself from the incredible pain that this person is continually inflicting upon you. Does that make sense? God is not asking us to stay in abusive patterns. David creates distance before he actually confronts him. When Saul hears David's words, he's moved emotionally. He's got this, he's got this encounter with the Spirit. It says, Saul replied, is that your voice, David, my son? And then he wept aloud and said to David, you're more righteous than I, for you have done what is good to me, though I have done what is evil to you. You yourself have told me today what is good and that you did it for me. When the Lord handed me over to you, you didn't kill me. Saul is feeling all the spiritual feels. He's been in this worship setting. He's got these, you know, Holy Spirit goosebumps. He even agrees that this is the right thing to do. I shouldn't kill you. I should stop pursuing you. But here's the point. In two chapters from now, he's going to be back at the same behavior again. He's going to have his spear in hand, still ruled by jealousy, still ready to cut David down. Listen, sometimes we can have an experience with the Holy Spirit. We can even gain a sense of God's mercy. Maybe we're convicted where our character doesn't align in the way of Jesus. Maybe we even have an emotional response. I don't know. The question is this. How does God want me to respond now, to take action? 
sometimes we need to learn a lesson a few times to really get it. I understand. This <laughs> is true in my own life. Other times, it's just self-deception self that keeps us from taking action. The question is, what am I going to do about it? One path leads to freedom. The other leads to further enslavement and emotional instability. Why? James, the apostle in the New Testament, says this in the message translation. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you're a listener when you're anything but. Letting the word of God go into one ear and out the other, act on what you hear. Those who hear and don't act are like those who glance in the mirror. They walk away and two minutes later they have no idea what they look like. But whoever catches a glimpse of the revealed counsel of God, the free life, even out of the corner of his eye and sticks with it and is no distracted scatterbrain but a man or woman of action, that person will find delight and affirmation in the action. Well, it's great for David, you might be saying. I guess I just have to work harder to obey. It's harder for me though. I'm not a person who has a lot of motivation. I fail a lot, but I guess I just gotta try harder. Listen, that kind of coercion, it's not gonna last. It's not gonna work. Willpower is no match for this kind of transformation, this kind of carved out character. Of course, transformation requires small habit shifts. Maybe I start every time I notice I'm tempted to cut someone down. I make a little remark. Instead, I replace that cutting remark with a blessing. Or maybe I decide that every time I'm tempted to criticize others, I pray for them. Every time I want to complain, I give thanks for three things that God's doing in my life. I don't know. Those are helpful. But you need more than that if your character is going to be carved out to resemble that of a king. You need, lastly, not just caves or conviction or action. You need an otherworldly affection. Verses 9 through 10 show us that David demonstrates incredible mercy for Saul. He tells Saul specifically how he's shown him mercy, and he swears to Saul that he's not going to kill him. The question is, what inspires this kind of mercy? What inspires this kind of affection that's otherworldly? Notice the way he addresses Saul in verse 11. He says, see my father, look at the corner of your robe in my hand, for I cut it off, but I didn't kill you. He addresses Saul as my father. This is no like Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader instance. This is a term of endearment. Saul is not his dad. He's just saying, I value your life. I love you. I hate what, you do, what you're doing, but I love you. And I imagine almost no one around David can comprehend why he's showing Saul this kind of affection. And the reason few understand it is because few of them have really tasted it. You can't show this kind of love and mercy unless you've received a greater otherworldly kind of love and mercy. David has tasted it. You can't write songs like Psalm 23 unless you've tasted of the goodness and mercy that follows you all the days of your life. And you know what? David knows he needs that. To follow Jesus is to learn lessons on how to love in a way that's otherworldly. Listen, at 42 and after 18 years of marriage, 
I'm only beginning to learn how frail and fragile my love really is in light of agape love, self-sacrificial love. You're being sold a lie, man, as am I, of what love really looks like. And you know what? It's setting us all up for failure. This is real love. Real love. It's otherworldly. Listen, I need to continually be reminded and receive an otherworldly kind of love in order even to remotely reflect this kind of love. David doesn't show Saul mercy because Saul deserves his affection. He shows Saul loving mercy because he's experienced otherworldly affection. And look at verse 11. David says, look and recognize that there is no evil or rebellion in me, Saul. I haven't sinned against you even though you're hunting me down to take my life. In this case, David is sinless against Saul. But David is far from being a man without sin. In just a few chapters, man, he's gonna commit really, really horrific acts that is gonna take another man's life. David will unjustly take the blood of another innocent man. God is carving David's character to resemble a true king the king of kings. For Saul to be truly cut out of David, for God to truly carve character in David that resembles God's king, David will need another king to live without evil or rebellion or sin. He'll need a ruler to come from his line who will be without sin, one who will show mercy even when others are hunting him down to take his life. And listen, Jesus boldly challenged the religious rulers to find any sin in him. And of course they couldn't. Jesus was the sinless good shepherd, but he was also the sinless king of kings. When he was going before Pilate, he said, are you the king? And Jesus says, yes, I am. It is as you say I am. I've come into this world to testify the truth. And even after Jesus was proven to be the innocent king, humanity still hunts him down. We say, we don't want him to be the king. We don't want him on the throne. That's not the kind of power I want. I want a different kind of juice. Jesus Christ is the sinless king of kings, the one who serves through love and mercy and grace, and we leave vengeance to him. Otherwise, we take up the sword. And you and I have been responsible for cutting him down. And ever since then, we've been cutting each other down so that we can find some type of privilege some type of throne. Jesus came into the world to cut out the Saul that's been killing you ever since he entered, sin entered the world. First Peter 1 says, in him there was no deceit. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. And there was no deceit in his mouth. Romans 5.8 says that God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He was willing to have his robe torn in pieces so that you, your whole soul, can be put back together again. Look at Saul in verse 21. He pleads with David, swear to me by the Lord that you won't cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. And what did Jesus do on the cross? 
he cried out, not my father, my father, but my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that when he dies and rises again, you can be washed and cleansed and you can say, my father, my father, I can't believe that you've forgiven me and you've brought me into your, your kingdom. When you trust Jesus, he's beginning to shape you. He's beginning to carve out character. Listen, for 20 plus years, that flawed marble lay, a statue of David lay shrouded in the courtyard until this 26-year-old artist hears about the marble and says, I think I can do something about it. I'm an expert with this kind of marble, you know? And so Michelangelo, in 1501, is commissioned to carve out the statue of David. And he knew how to work with the flaws to accentuate the features in the statue. He became obsessed with the project. He didn't leave the studio. He slept with his clothes and his boots on, chiseling, cutting, carving, because he had a different vision for what David could be than the other artists had. He was an artist. He was creative in the way he carved David's character. And because his life was devoted to David's masterpiece, he loved David. Every glance, every chisel, every cut was done with love. Listen, is it possible that God is just a really great artist? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your words to us, Lord.